Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast, where the church's status quo and sacred cows get rounded up, simmered down, and dished out. And now, here's your chief cook, author, innovator, filmmaker, and founder of Group Publishing, Tom Schultz. Welcome to Holy Soup. We're coming to you today from uh, Holy Soup's world headquarters right here in Loveland, Colorado. And with us today is Rick Lawrence, writer, speaker, longtime executive editor of Group Magazine, author, co-author, editor of dozens of books, including The Jesus-Centered Life, which we're going to be talking about today. And uh, he was also the lead editor for the new Jesus-Centered Bible. And uh, Rick, uh, I have to tell you, is a good friend and a, a co-worker here for many years. How many years now at Group? Um, I am. I can see thirty years over the horizon. Wow. Time. I've been here uh, twenty-eight plus. So, oh. yeah. You don't even look that old. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> well, welcome. <laughs> it's uh, great to have you here, and looking forward to this uh, conversation. When we talk about Jesus-centeredness and the Jesus-centered life, in a nutshell, what do you mean by that? Uh, I mean that it's a a life that ends up being captured and fascinated by and passionate about and thinking all the time about Jesus, not because you're supposed to or because it's a churchy thing to do or because that's how you grew up or because you're crazy or you're a fanatic or you're a little creepy weird. (laughs) It's simply because you've been with him so much and so deeply that he's captured you and uh, this is this kind of life is not a life for people that we might call saints. It's an everyday, normal kind of life for so many millions of people who are living this life right now. They're, they, their whole lives orbit around Jesus, and he spills into everything, every aspect of their life. They don't have any real compartments in their life like, oh, this is my uh, fitness compartment, or this is my movie-watching compartment, or this is my uh, reading novels compartment. He influences every aspect of their life, and they see life through the filter of their love and relationship for Jesus. You just mentioned uh, this concept of an orbit around Jesus, and you talk about that in your book, The Jesus-Centered Life. Tell me about that, the, this idea of an orbit and uh, what you call an, uh, an increasing gravitational pull. Yeah. So, so uh, I love how Paul talks about in Romans that everything in the created world is embedded kind of with the fingerprints of God. If, if you study the created world, you'll understand the heart of God. He goes, Paul goes that far to say that. So, so let's take him literally at that and say, uh, well, let's... What, what would a black hole be a metaphor for? Because that's something in the created world. Well, black holes uh, have a mass so heavy that they draw even light into their gravitational pull. And there's a place, I had to do some research on this because I had some basic understanding of black holes, but not really that much. And there's this place called the, this, this mark called the event horizon, by which if you cross the event horizon, that means that you've crossed a boundary toward the black hole from which you you can't escape. So after you cross that boundary, you are caught up in the orbit of that black hole. And it struck me that metaphorically speaking, that black hole is a lot like Jesus. So the closer you get to him, you cross this event horizon that's a you know a, a non-visual horizon, where whereby you can never go back again. You're so 
what the language that I use is you're ruined by Jesus and ruined for Jesus when you cross this line, and you can never go back. And there's so many examples of people in the Bible and just people in our everyday life who exactly fit that description. They they don't always understand Jesus. They don't always have all the right answers. Um, they're often flummoxed and they have doubts. But one thing they know is they're never going to leave Jesus because they've crossed over that line, and now they're in his gravitational pull. So part of the Jesus-centered life is simply incrementally getting closer and closer to Jesus so that our lives begin to slowly orbit around him, and the orbit gets closer and closer to him. And at some point, we cross that line, and we're never going back. (laughs) You know, as you talk about that, I think there's a lot of us who may not see ourselves quite there yet. Yeah. A lot of people who call themselves Christians, a lot of people who call themselves followers of Jesus don't see themselves yeah. in that kind of gravitational pull. In fact, uh, in your book, i uh, just like to read a, a piece from it. You say, I think we're now at a place where we're so comfortable with Jesus, so confident of who he is and what he's like, that a lot of what we know is actually wrong. We've kind of lost interest in him, like a married couple in midlife. Oh, boy, you're hitting close to home here. <laughs> we think we pretty much have him pegged all the things we like and all the things that have been bugging us about him for years. We've been married a long time, married a long time to Jesus, and have gone through a lot together. But one of the marriage partners, the church, is sort of looking around for something to spark our passions because we're past that passionate curiosity stage with Jesus. So we turn to the form and function of doing church as a kind of midlife splurge, like getting ourselves involved in an emotional affair to rouse us from our relational boredom. Rick, holy cow. Uh, What do you mean? Well, you know, uh, I mean— as I was writing this, and this this book is really the product of the last dozen years of my life. So I'm like everyone else. that I lived a normal life, growing up in the church, had all the normal things that happen to you when you grow up in the church. I work for a ministry organization, creating ministry resources. All that was normal life, but something huge changed in me. I, I hit a tipping point about a dozen years ago, and that passage that you just read kind of explores some of what that's like. I realized in my adult life that I'd been around Jesus so long and pretty much thought I had him dialed in, and there was really nothing that much to learn new about Mm -hmm. him. I mean, I still enjoyed a good teaching and a good Bible study, but um, what, what happened to me is I started progressively discovering that the Jesus I thought I knew wasn't really the Jesus of the Bible. I mean, when you actually slow down and pay attention to the Jesus described in the Bible, he shatters all of our normal Western, uh, you know, uh, t- tied up in a neat bow ways of seeing Jesus. He shatters all that stuff because, truthfully, he's he's the most uh, disruptive person that ever lived. Hmm. And his mission and his practice with each person he met was to disrupt their status quo. And I I just became more and more astonished by the Jesus that was revealed when I slowed down and actually paid attention to him. And I realized that in the church, that mid-marriage rut that I described there is exactly how I was experiencing church, Hmm. that we pretty much thought we had Jesus dialed in, 
and he was kind of, he had subtly receded into the background like he was the wallpaper of our Christian life. And the Christian life was now about a lot of other stuff. Hmm. I've had so many experiences where now that I'm so awake and alive to the presence of Jesus that I, I notice when I'm sitting in church where functionally what, what's, what's happening in that space is we're pretty much over Jesus. So let's focus on the things that really matter now. Hmm. things that matter in your pr- practical everyday life. And I found myself more and more not feeling at home in that space. Hmm. Wow, Rick. Uh, you know, in America, we, we've got this vast religious enterprise, the institutional <laughs> church, yeah. uh, that uh, would identify, I think, with the concept. If you would just throw out the, the term Jesus-centered or Jesus-centered life to people, leaders in the church, they'd, they'd identify with that and say, yeah, we do that. But you're, you're really calling into question the outcome of the church's concept of uh, what we might call Jesus-centered. In fact, um, here's another passage from your book, uh, The Jesus-Centered Life. You say, uh, it's clear that despite the best intentions of the Western church, all of our Bible studies, our men's prayer breakfasts, our women's candlelight dinners, our Christian living books, our three-point sermons that load a half dozen new imperatives onto our backs, our positive, encouraging Christian music, and our accountability relationships, those who name themselves Christian just aren't getting who Jesus really is or we're not getting enough of who he really is, or we're getting literally, you say, a fake Jesus. Rick, what do you mean by a fake Jesus? <laughs> well, the fake Jesus is, is uh, we, we've done a lot of uh, work in talking to people about their, their description of Jesus, how they would describe him all the way from adolescence up, in, up into adults. And the primary way that people describe Jesus is that he's a nice guy and a good teacher. Mm. He, he was a wise person. Um, but it just reminds me of Jesus encountering the disciples on the road to Emmaus after he had, after his resurrection, and and incognito he asks them what's going on, and they're like, "Are you the only one that doesn't know? This guy Jesus was just killed by the Roman and, and religious leaders," and they start describing to them, describing to Jesus who he is, mm. and the way they describe him is off. <laughs> it's not him. And Jesus points that out. He, he basically kind of throws his hands up and says, hey, you missed me. This is me. Mm. And he goes through describing who he actually is from the Old Testament into the present when he's describing what Jesus actually did to reveal himself. And I, th- I think in a, in a lot of ways, uh, I say this to people all the time, you can't have a relationship with a fake person. And if the, the, the Jesus that we've been describing to people and the Jesus that we've been describing to ourselves is really not the Jesus of the Bible in all of his glory and all of his breadth and depth, then it's going to be hard for us to have a very intimate relationship with him. And I found that the closer you get to the real Jesus as described in the Bible, the more intimacy you're drawn into with him. He, he just becomes so alive to you. So fake Jesus is a really—it's it's like the Trojan horse Jesus. So he, he looks like Jesus, he sounds like Jesus, but he's not actually Jesus. But as long as we have that fake Jesus, we don't feel a pressing need to become more intimate to him because that guy doesn't interest us that much. Hmm. You know, it, it seems like uh, the church has constructed itself around an academic model 
We use terms like Sunday school, Bible studies, teaching pastors. Even the church property these days is called a campus, even if the church property is just a storefront uh, with a thousand square feet, they call that a campus these days because that's the academic term to use. Well, the assumption seems to be that uh, among those of us in the church, if you're exposed to more data about God in the Bible, then you'll be more Jesus-centered. But I hear you saying maybe it doesn't quite work out that way. Well, uh, one of the illustrations I use in there, I'm just trying to get at some of the heart of this. Um, I made up a scenario that I put in the book, and the scenario is that a friend of yours calls you breathless and says, hey, um, I, I've got two tickets to that thing that's happening downtown today that everybody wanted to get into, but nobody can because there's only like a dozen people invited. It's this special one-hour cooking class with a world-renowned celebrity, and the celebrity is a mystery celebrity. You don't get to see who it is until you get there. Um, do you want to go? I have an extra ticket. And you say, of course I do. And you go downtown and you go into this kind of warehousey place and they have a fabulous kitchen inside there and everybody's waiting who's going to show up and in walks Oprah. Hmm. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, there's 12 of us going to go through a cooking class with Oprah. And you spend the whole hour and she shares your her favorite recipes and she shows you how to make them. And at the end of that time, it, it's over. Everybody's picking up to leave and Oprah walks over to you and says, you know, I really enjoyed how you interacted in this class. Would you like to go to coffee sometime? And your response is, uh, not really, but I love your recipes. <laughs> Could I get more of those? I think sometimes that's what we have subtly devolved into, that we love the recipes of Jesus so much um, that there are recipes for Christian living or our recipes for how to have a happier, healthier life that we forget that if we really experience the person behind those recipes, then the recipes would be fine. I mean, that's something to do with him. <laughs> but really, the point is to be with him, to get to know him, to go have coffee with him and share your heart with him, because that overshadows all the recipe stuff. I just think somehow, some way along the way, we've shifted our focus away from the person, getting to know the person and being captured by him, and letting the things that we know about him lead us to greater intimacy with him instead of lead us to a better recipe for living. So if, if we are to aspire to be more Jesus-centered, uh, it's not something that uh, we're going to get to by three steps and a workbook? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it's honestly, people put, throw around stuff all the time like, you know, well, it's not really possible to really know Jesus. He's, he's a mystery, you know, and things that he does are just confounding, and we can't ever really know him. And I think, you know, that's just a bunch of bunk. There's nothing in—I mean, Jesus came to reveal exactly the heart of God, and the Holy Spirit now exists to show us the heart of Jesus inside of us. He's not hiding from us. He's not trying to— uh, uh, camouflage himself. He's showing us who, who he is, but he also is not pushing himself on us. And so what, what he does is he invites us to know him. And I think that invitation to know him is, is really the simplicity of the Jesus-centered life. And in the back of the book, the last two-thirds of the book are these things I call the beeline practices. They're not, it's not a linear progression of stuff to do, and they're not shoulds, like you, you should be doing this. It's just like a restaurant menu. 
It's I think it's a couple of dozen um, different ways of urging yourself a little closer to Jesus so that if you do any of – if you do two or three of those two dozen different practices, ones that really resonate with you, your orbit starts to, to revolve around Jesus a little more and it starts to get a little bit closer to him. And eventually, without you even knowing it, you cross your own event horizon and then you're like me. You're like, you're ruined for him. Um, so that's the point of those things. They're, it's a very simple – diverse set of ways of living that will help draw you more close close to Jesus. It's not rocket science. It's just slowing down a little bit, paying better attention to him, and letting him sink in. You mentioned uh, that it's not built on a bunch of shoulds. In, in the book, you talk about rejecting the culture of should. And in the Christian community, it seems like that's a very prominent kind of thing. In the book, you say uh, it's wrong to should people into a love relationship, and it's worse than wrong. Actually, it's heretical to should people into a love relationship with Jesus. What do you mean by that? I mean that it's it's kind of like parents. Uh, you know, when something's super important as a parent, and you're looking at your child, and you know, wow, this is so important that they do well in school, for instance, because their grades could affect what school they get into, their future career and all this. When there's something on the line, um, we tend to default to the best leverage we can find. And we inaccurately often think that shooting somebody into doing something is the most effective leverage because we have we can see the short-term results from it. So we tend to default to shooting ways of describing this relationship with God. Like, uh, if, God, if God isn't a priority in your life, that's not a question to be pursued about why he isn't. It's a should to be leveraged. Well, he should be. God should be a priority in your life. There was a, a time when I was uh, uh, in our—we have a, you know, a huge work camp program that we run in the summer with uh, uh, almost 20,000 young people— serving in one capacity or another around the country, serving people, the poor around the country. And at the start of that summer, I always go and lead a morning and evening devotion for one of the kickoff days for our training of the hundred or so college students who help us staff those mm -hmm. camps around the country. And a couple of years ago, I was standing in front of them in the evening. I was doing the evening devotion, and it was just one of those times where I just felt stopped in my tracks by the Spirit. And I, I got emotional. Uh, I wasn't. I didn't understand exactly what was going on, but I realized as I was looking at all those faces out there, all these kids who had grown up in the church and now were serving Jesus at this work camp program, that that they had grown up similar to me, and that they had grown up learning that you should love Jesus because you should love Jesus. So I stopped and I said, you know, I got to stop right now and say something to all of you. The room was really quiet. I, and I said, I just want to apologize to you on behalf of the church. You've been told that you should love Jesus because you should love Jesus. And that's not something that Jesus ever intended for you. That's just our messy way that we've tried to leverage you into a lifelong relationship with him. The truth is he's just inviting you to taste and see that he's good. And then let the chips fall where they may. I'll never forget. I, I had tears streaming down my face when I was saying this. But a lot of those young people started crying. Mm. 
because they had grown up under this pressure to to elevate Jesus because they were supposed to and to have the freedom to just taste and experience him and then let the chips fall where they may. That's what Jesus really wants. He wants us to come to him just like any lover would come to their lover, not because they're supposed to, but because they're drawn drawn toward him. So it I think what their tears meant that they felt a freedom that they hadn't growing up in the church. I can hear people, though, saying, Rick, that uh, you, you're you arguing with the whole idea of obedience. That uh, <laughs> And these people would probably say that, uh, well, you want to be Jesus-centered? Okay, obey. Yeah. That's how you become Jesus-centered. You obey. In fact, uh, it reminds me of... Many times we'll, we'll share some of our research on one of the prominent or the most prominent reason that people are leaving the church today, and that is that they feel judged. And when I share that with people, people will often say, well, they should feel judged. They're wrong. They have not obeyed. So are you saying that uh, obedience is not a part of the Christian life? Well, I'm saying obedience obviously is an aspect of trust. And trust is one of the cornerstones of any intimate relationship, marriage, otherwise. So obedience in our relationship with God is essentially about trusting him and leading our lives according to his influence in our lives. Obedience is truly a fruit of something very deep that's happening in our relationship with Jesus, just like it is in our other relationships. I don't cheat on my wife. Not because I don't have somebody standing over me reminding me not to cheat on my wife. I don't cheat on my wife because I don't want to break her heart mm. by my actions. So I'm obedient in my marriage vows to my wife because I love her. And um, if I'm tempted to stray from her, um, is it helpful that I have other people around me reminding me that, 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 that that's a betrayal of my love? Of course it is. But it, it's it's just a nuance that the church has taken that has flipped the whole thing to obedience is the pathway into a relationship with him. Actually, obedience is the fruit of a relationship with him, and it's part of um, a, a love relationship where you honor the trust that you have. That reminds me of another thing that you talk about in your book. You talk about attachment and how that's different from what is often emphasized yeah. in the church. Yeah, there, there's a... Uh, uh, Jesus talks uh, almost all the time in metaphors. He's always trying to help us understand th- uh, things in the kingdom of God, in the foreign land he comes from. <laughs> um, he's trying to help us understand that in our regular everyday life. So he uses metaphors a lot to do that. And uh, one of his favorite metaphors for describing his relationship with us is that he is the vine and we are the branch. And only if we're abiding in him will we produce fruit. And in fact, only if we're abiding in him can we do anything, he says. So then Paul takes that same metaphor and, and kind of deepens it a little bit. He describes our relationship with Jesus as like a dead branch grafted into a living vine. So I realized at one point um, I didn't really understand how grafting worked. So I went uh, with my wife to a master gardener, and I asked at a nursery, can you show us how grafting works? They took us around the back of the building. They mm. were grafting some fruit trees. They did it. It took about five minutes, and my wife and I were just crying by the end of it because we realized whenever Jesus uses a metaphor, it's a perfect metaphor. That means you can drill and drill and drill into that metaphor and get deeper meaning. Mm -hmm. So if you drill into grafting and what it means for a branch to be abiding in the vine, 
it's powerful to see what an intimate thing this is. And uh, so what I've said is that the goal of our life is to become more deeply attached to Jesus, to abide in him the way he told us we had to if we were going to do anything in life. Instead of trying to, uh, what I what I call, understand and apply our way through life, to make it all about our head, understanding a truth, and then somehow through our sheer strength of will, learning how to apply that to our life. What if instead our every momentum in our life was was built around and oriented toward attaching more deeply to him so that once we were, his life would come up into our dead branch and produce great fruit with very little effort from us, which is which sounds terrible and heretical in the church that that we could produce fruit with very little effort from us. But this is Jesus's metaphor, not mine. This is what he says this life can look like. If we'll just attach our dead branch to him more deeply, we get his life mm. and his fruit. Hmm. Going about that and deepening that relationship, becoming more Jesus-centered, in the book, you talk about uh, and you reveal some very personal stories of experiencing God through simply slowing down and listening, listening for the voice of God, sensing the nudge mm-hmm. of, of God. Uh, what does that look like for you? Well, that's a great question, and it's the, you know, if you're outside of the church, if you say, uh, I talk to God, you're, you're likely insane. That guy's nuts. <laughs> but if you're inside the church, um, all of us assent on one level or another that a relationship with God is alive, that it's present in my life today, and somehow, some way, I'm guided, directed, and have a growing relationship with God. That means something happens in that relationship that is present right now, that could change me right now. It doesn't feel so crazy when you're inside this relationship. Um, so l- listening to Jesus, for me, has meant becoming more like a child, which is exactly the way Jesus said we would enter the kingdom yeah. of God mm-hmm. if we became more like a child. So for me, what, what it meant was I started reading the Bi- when I read the Bible— and he would say something, I accepted it more like a child would. And when he talks about, uh, in John 16 and 17, about the Holy Spirit coming so that we can have an intimate relationship with him all the time, the, um, I, I started reading that like a child mm. and, and started opening myself, inviting um, him to influence my everyday life, not just big decisions when you know we have to formally pray, but just everyday circumstances where you slow down and are uh, are paying attention to his voice and the little nudges that you feel during the day. And when you would normally come up against a challenge or a problem and you try to brainstorm your way through it, instead you just pause just for a moment to invite, Jesus, what do you want me to do here? And and have the faith that he's going to, that he wants to guide you. (laughs) Just that's what a kid does. He has just, just a basic faith that you actually want to help me. You want to be involved in every aspect of my life, so I'm inviting you. And then you expect it, and my experience is more often than not, um, he nudges me <laughs> one way or another. So it's not a science. I'd say it's more like an art 
But that's also what a relationship is. It's not a science. It's an art. Well, you you talk about a lot of questions that you ask God. Yeah. And sometimes very personal and very spontaneous where you're asking questions like, well, why am I feeling this way? Why is this person reacting to me this way? Yeah. I I have a really good friend who's pastor, who was my pastor for a dozen years. His name is Tom Melton. And he says a lot of things that just stick in my head. And one of them is... Notice what you notice. It's so simple, but it so struck me that what he's really saying is when you notice something going on in yourself, stop and notice that. Hmm. So a lot of the questions that I ask Jesus are because I'm noticing what I'm noticing. So a lot of us walk around in our daily lives, and we have what I would call low-scale fears or anxieties or stresses, things that are going on in the background of our soul And we just don't pay attention to them, but they do feed into the way we interact with people. So one thing for me that has changed is I'm much more aware of the fears, anxieties, and stresses that I walk around with. And and the reason I'm more aware of them is I'm paying attention to what I notice about myself, and then I'm asking Jesus for help and understanding and vision and perspective about whatever it is. And sometimes it's just confession. Jesus, I'm really afraid right now, and I haven't been willing to admit it, but I'm afraid about this. Um, When I'm struggling with something or I'm hurt, I I will come to him like a little kid and say, I'm really struggling and hurting right now. Can you reflect back to me who I really am right now? Because I'm losing touch with who I am. I mean, it sounds, you know, more complicated than it is just living my life, but it's just a simple way of turning my attention away from myself to him for a moment to let him reflect back to me what's really going on in my life and help me. What happens when you do that? I mean, I mean do you hear the physical voice of God? or what, what I have happens? never heard the audible voice of God, but I have uh, been guided and directed by his still, what the Bible calls his still small voice. It's really a kind of a voice, a, a silent voice that in, in, in your head, I guess, is where it, I don't know where it shows up, your soul, your heart, your head. <laughs> I don't know where it shows up. But it's, I've had many, many times where that voice has been clear enough and startling enough that I, I know it's, I, I know it's him. It's not something I'm making up. Um, but again, it's, uh, it, it's radical to be a child. That's, that's what Jesus was trying to say. So what I'm saying right now is what a child would do. Oh yeah, I hear. I, in fact, I lead kids, children, and teenagers all the time into experiences where I'm helping them learn how to listen to the voice of Jesus. And they have no problem with this. Hmm. They don't have nearly the baggage that adults have with this. And people will say, oh, well, what if they, you know, what if they hear something that's not really Jesus? And there's a very simple ways to talk to people about this. You know, if you're praying for somebody and you're trying to listen for G- to Jesus on their behalf, and the person that's being prayed for doesn't think that's really about them, then they have every right to say, thank you. Hmm. That wasn't inside. They can say, that wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. We make mistakes in this, but it's it's okay because the alternative is to never open yourself to being guided on in a, on an everyday basis by the voice and presence of Jesus. I, I'd rather risk on that side. You know, when you talk about becoming more Jesus-centered, this orbit getting closer and closer and closer to this gravitational pull of Jesus, I think uh, some people would automatically say, well, you get that through Bible study. You get that through if you've got a good teacher, preacher. You get that uh, 
through that means, but this whole idea of personally hearing directly from God, uh, some people would say, well, you can't really rely on that. That's that's getting a little bit too weird. Yeah, and, and of course, his voice would never contradict what we know is true from the Bible. If it does, then there's something wrong. It's not like this is pristine. We're messy people. But uh, the, the, the reality that the people described in the Bible and the body of Christ for 2,000 years has been guided and directed by the presence and, the, if you want to call it, the voice of Jesus is undeniable. It's, it's, it's what's advanced the church all over the world. It's not us being clever. I mean, the, the disciples were not clever men. Only, you know, Paul was highly educated, but then everything drops off after Paul. <laughs> Those men were not highly educated. In fact, um, Peter and John stunned the religious leaders after the resurrection of Jesus when they spoke on behalf of Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. They, the, the, those leaders said, how is it possible that these men can speak this way? And they're so bold. Oh, oh, they were with Jesus. That's why. Um, the, the, the point is not how clever these men were. The point is they were dependent on Jesus who guided and directed them into what they were doing. And when they were obedient <laughs> and followed what he was nudging them to do, they ended up changing the world. So scripture, for sure, uh, can Absolutely. draw us closer. Those stories from 2,000 years and more ago uh, are as compelling today as they've ever been. But you're saying don't stop there. Allow God to continue to interact, get to know, speak to us today. Yeah. In fact, uh, there, I led a group through uh, some of these beeline practices of drawing closer to Jesus not long ago, a few weeks ago. And after the fact, one of those pers- one of those people, it's a ministry person, went home and said, and then wrote uh, uh, back and, and emailed and said, you know, I've been struggling since I've gotten back because this whole idea that that we could be guided and led by Jesus in the kind of the tiny moments of our lives makes me uncomfortable. Mm. I, I just don't feel comfortable right now. And my response to her was, I totally get it. Um, you know, the, uh, anything that leads to growth in us comes with a discomfort. There, There isn't a way to grow in life mm. that doesn't come with some level of discomfort. So I totally get it. But the, what's the alternative? Are you saying that, that um, your knowledge and experience of Jesus is only um, anchored in what you read about him in Scripture? Or are you saying that he has the ability to influence your everyday life today, not in contradiction to anything that's been he said or did in Scripture, but that it's a living, active relationship? Are you saying that you have a living, active relationship with Jesus or not? And she said, well, of course I have a living, active relationship with Jesus. And I said, so then that's all we're talking about. How do we live that out? How do we uh, how, how do we come clean about that instead of spiritualize it or say, you know, the only thing that you can really say for sure is that Jesus said this in the Bible. We just don't even live our lives that way. It's not true. So the, the Bible, reading and studying the Bible is so crucial because that's how we come to know who Jesus really is. And, and so when we, do our, when we are guided by his voice, we know his voice. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Mm-hmm. When they hear it, well, studying him and 
coming to understand him through scripture is one way the sheep know his voice. Thank you, Rick, for what you share in uh, the Jesus-centered life and how we can all take steps to to grow closer and closer in that orbit. You give lots of of uh, ideas and thoughts and challenges, particularly in the second half of the book, of ways that we can make this beeline to Jesus, as, as you call it. And uh, it, it's it's thought provoking, it's challenging, and uh, it it makes me uh, want to taste and see that this is good. Uh, you have uh, experienced this over the past, what, 10, 12 years mm-hmm. where, where you've really been delving into this. How is your life different on a day-to-day basis now that you are thinking and, and believing and living this way? That is a great question. Um, when I look over the last decade of my life, two things stand out for me. One is I experience a much greater level of freedom in my life than I'd ever experienced before. Freedom from uh, self-doubt, freedom, not, not that it, the other side of that is arrogance. I, I'm maybe the least arrogant I've ever been. <laughs> At the same time, I have the least amount of doubt about who I am and what I was created to be and how much Jesus loves me. I experience freedom from captivity, which is really the job description of Jesus. When he quotes Isaiah and says, this is why I came, it's I came to set captives free. So my experience of intimacy with Jesus over the last dozen years has led to a much deeper level of freedom from captivity for me. That's one thing. And as this uh, orbit got closer and closer for me, the level of my impact on the people around me and in my world exploded. The, the you know I've written lots of books um, over the course of my time, but the the message of the books that I've written in the last decade has been radically different, and the I've seen the impact of what I've written and what I speak about and my personal relationships with people have been hugely expanded, um, and it's not again it's because of my attachment to the vine. I have. I'm not, I don't just talk about a dead branch being attached to a living vine. I've experienced what that feels like to feel like a dead branch, to have His life come through me, and this great fruit produced that people can come by, pluck, eat, and be nourished from. That's just exploded in my life in the last decade. So uh, I'd say those are the two primary differences in my life. Hmm. Well, thank you, Rick. Your book, The Jesus-Centered Life, is uh, available from group.com and from amazon.com. And you're also the the lead guy on uh, producing the uh, incredible Jesus-Centered Bible, which uh, is also available at group.com and, and Amazon. And great, great resources. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.